He's already been dead and it's messed with his head. It's John's post-life crisis. Welcome to what we're calling John's post-life crisis this week because we haven't really settled on a name yet. We are joined by Dr. Mark Coddington, who is a professor at Washington and Lee University, and he is a professor of journalism. And welcome, Mark. Talk about yourself. Thanks, John. Um, and I like the I like the name. I don't know if this is the first episode with that uh, with that name, but I like post post life crisis. Um, yeah, I am. Uh, I, I teach journalism at Washington and Lee University, which is a small liberal arts college in uh, rural Virginia. Um, and I am of, of interest to your audience. I'm a Nebraskan. Um, I am a former newspaper reporter. I was a reporter at the Grand Island Independent um, for four years um, back in the late 2000s. Um, I then went and got a PhD at the University of Texas. Um, I know, I know, I know. I, I have never in my life flashed the hook'em horns. Um, I have resisted. Um, when Nebraska played Texas in volleyball, I went to the game with my wife in Nebraska gear. So I represented, I stood strong. I still root for the Texas like journalism school, but not not the athletic program. So I just need to establish that to maintain credibility with your audience. Um, so uh, so yeah, I was um, uh, there for my master's and PhD. And while I was there, I wrote a, a column every week for the Neiman Journalism Lab, which is a website kind of about the future of news and uh, technology run by Harvard. Um, and so I wrote a column for them kind of about the latest and what people are talking about in the future of news. So I have a little bit of newspaper background, uh, local news um, in Grand Island, Nebraska, and also have been thinking about kind of uh, tech and where news is headed um, for a while as well. You you have bona fides. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, that's that's what we call that, right? You know, I, one of my favorite movies, Brother, Where Out There. You got the bona fides. I got the bona fides, especially like I said, for a Nebraska-oriented audience. You know, I think I think that's important. If I, as soon as I bring in University of Texas, I I can hear. I can hear the skepticism now, but I want to assure assure them I am a I'm a through and through Nebraskan. It says so on my Twitter profile, even. So, I got angry. I'm past <laughs> it. It was just you know, it was a wave of anger. Whatever. Uh, okay, number one. How do we know each other? Because you know my memory is messed up, and you know, why do we know each other? Um, I, I probably only have a little bit more knowledge than you do. I, I don't, I don't really know. Um, I, <laughs> I've been, I've read coordination. I have excuses, Mark. Yes, I don't. Um, so I've read coordination for a long time. And, uh, at some point early on, um, we started emailing each other and basically anytime you had a question about like what's really going on with newspapers i i you're studying this stuff aren't you um i would try to answer it um i also um back when i th i think you did some editing work for like the huskers yearbook um like with maple street press back in like 2011 or something yeah. like that uh, it was right after I had moved to Austin. It was right when Nebraska joined the Big Ten, and you had me write an essay for you um, 
about like this is what the this is what the Big Ten means and this is what life in the Big Ten is all about. Um, so little things here and there. We've just emailed each other randomly throughout throughout the years. They, I, I'll tell you this. We, for people that don't know, I edited a yearbook for a few years for a company called Maple Street Press, and just when we were getting going, they went bankrupt, and it was right at the. Uh, it was a depression. I, I'm not going to go into it, but they went bankrupt, and I really liked doing it because it held me to a really high standard. You know, we had to put out a yearbook that was. Uh, well done. It was had to be edited. It had to be not our goofy stuff the way it was put on Coronation, and uh, I and 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 they paid me for it, and that's the part that I was really <laughs> upset about. But yeah. uh, Mark, we're here today. Should I call you Doctor Mark or just no, Mark? no? Just I Mark. can go with first name. Okay, Mark. We're here today because this still bothers me about what's happening with journalism, what's happening with newspapers. Uh, and I'm going to ask you this question. Mm -hmm. We're going to start with this. Is there more bias in media coverage now than there's ever been in the past? Or do we romanticize the past with regards to journalism in the way that we do everything else? Yeah. Um, well, the, the answer – Anytime you ask an academic anything is basically going to be kind of um, yes and no. And I think that's kind of the answer here. Uh, I think there's a there's a there's a lot of factors at play um, here enough that I actually teach a whole class on um, media bias, um, even though I don't. I don't really like the topic. I, I start out my class telling my students that media bias is a subject that talking about it actively makes you dumber about the media, but we're going to spend a whole class talking about it anyway, um, mostly because I think it's a great entry point to really interesting conversations that hopefully do make us smarter. Um, so um, one one factor going on is that when you when you talk about like people being nostalgic, um, what in your sense, uh, uh, sort of anecdotally, what do you think people are nostalgic for? What do they? What do you or other people think of or talk about when you think of like the good old days? Okay, the the one that always comes up with with me is. Walter Cronkite, the voice of America, I don't remember what he was called, but Walter Cronkite was a very liberal person. He was a progressive, and when you go back and look what he did with the Vietnam War, I mean, he tanked the Vietnam War all mm -hmm. by himself. He really did. You know, we could go into this for a long time. Right. Yeah, and that's and, we and, could. But right. Well, I, and and I'm glad you you've already kind of made a couple of my first points for me, um, which is Walter Cronkite is the name that comes up more often than any other. That like un Uncle Walter was in your living room, and he 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 understood, and you trusted him, and you felt like he was kind of a neutral arbiter. And the the story about him in the Vietnam War is classic, where he he went and then he came back, and and really. Um, you know, really issued a pretty damning indictment of the U.S.'s war effort. And this was in, I forget, like 67, 68. And, um, it was 69 and because the, the Tet Offensive. Oh, okay, 69. You're right. Right. Um, 
And I believe, and it was Nixon who would have been at the time in early 69 said, um, and I can't know, Ted Offensive was early 68. I think it was maybe LBJ who supposedly said, if I've lost Cronkite, then I've lost um, then I've lost middle America okay. and, and this notion, and, but I could be, I could be off. Um, so this notion that like middle America just kind of understood and respected and trusted Walter Cronkite and identified with, with him. And I think you, you've, um, identified like one potential problem with this nostalgia is that we don't, we, we remember him as being a lot more neutral and a lot more uniformly trusted as than he actually was. Um, Walter Cronkite was getting, blasted as a liberal um all the way through like the nixon administration um and and it, it was it was fairly similar to what we hear today being talked about with the liberal media maybe the volume now has been turned up to 11 um so so he wasn't quite as universally trusted as we remember but i also think you know we think of walter cronkite when we think of the past and when we think of the present media environment overwhelmingly um people are thinking of cable news um, Pew actually did a really interesting survey about four or five years ago. I, I, I wish they would like repeat it every few years, um, where they asked people when you, when you, um, are thinking of the news media, what are you thinking of? And the overwhelmingly most popular answer was cable news. And I repeat this every time I teach my class, um, my media bias class with my students. What are you thinking of with your, when you think of, uh, cable news uh, or when you think of the news media and this past year, 14 out of the 15 students in the class were thinking of cable news. Um, so our image, when we talk about the news media, we could be talking about virtually anything, but most people have in their head this idea of cable news. And like, of course, we wait, think that wait. cable news. Yes. Define cable news. Cable, by cable news, I'm thinking of um, not NBC, ABC, or CBS. I'm thinking of Fox News. Uh, CNN and MSNBC are the big three. There's also okay. like Fox Business and Bloomberg and CNBC, and you know, um, it, I guess there's one American News Network now. Uh, but the big three there that we're thinking of are CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC. Um, and and of course, we think of the news media as being more biased now than it was back then because we're thinking of cable news, and cable news was a thing that didn't even exist in the days of Walter Cronkite. And of course, it is it is more biased. It is it is literally like you know, it depends on the network, but 70, 80 percent of it is just people spouting opinions. Um, that's the bias is is their product. Um, that it's opinion. That's what they do. Um, so so I think some of it is just kind of a a um, a little bit of slippage in the term um, that we we're not necessarily comparing apples to oranges. Um, and like when we think of the media being biased, we're thinking of cable news and like. Cable news is not really, as an enterprise, super interested in like avoiding opinion at all costs. Like literally, their business is opinion. Um, so, so it kind of makes sense. So people, so people screaming at each other. When I turn on Fox News or CNN, all I see is people yelling at each other. That that seems like an accurate representation. I, I don't watch this. All of those I, I literally yeah. do not watch any news yeah. on TV. And I try to avoid it for generally that reason, that it's it's pretty low information content. It's kind of the information equivalent of peeps. 
Um, it's just, it's just a terrible thing to make a staple <laughs> of your media diet. Um, so I will say after having, you know, kind of gone in, in that direction, I will say the yes part of it is that we have seen from study after study, if you take a long view, like a half a century view, we have seen news coverage. Um, and this is especially focusing on more of this, more of this research is focusing on like print newspapers and now online. Uh, we've seen that articles in newspapers have steadily gotten much longer and they've included much more analytical or interpretive language. If you compared a news article from the 50s um, to one today or 10 years ago, uh, it, it wouldn't even feel like the same genre, like the same type of product. Um, it has changed so dramatically. And a lot of that has gone from, you know, uh, journalists basically dutifully recounting whatever the officials in power did the previous day. Um, you know, whatever they said in their speeches and their addresses and, you know, these sorts of things to a lot more of explaining, okay, what does this all mean? Why? What's going on here? Um, and that's where we perceive bias. And it makes sense because we're asking journalists to, to make a lot more judgments. Um, so in that sense, like if we read, if we read newspapers back in the forties or fifties, um, something like this. We would see it and we'd say, yeah, this is pretty bare bones, just the facts. Um, the problem is, and this is a point that um, a lot of this point is, you know, uh, made really well and really thoroughly in a book that came out last year um, called On Press by Matthew Pressman, uh, just to cite my sources. Um, he he um, basically says the problem is all those old articles um, and that old style of journalism, it was terrible. Um, it really didn't hold people in power to account um, it, it didn't perform that kind of watchdog function very well that we expect journalism to perform. It was huh. really difficult to understand because they didn't analyze stuff for us. They didn't tell us what stuff meant. They just told us here, an official said this and another official said this, and they kind of almost relied on the audience to sort of connect the dots, which we can't, we, you know. We've got jobs and lives. We can't right. sit down and yeah. figure this all out. Okay. And so he basically says, like, news has changed, and and it has involved the introduction of a particular kind of bias. Um, and and he says, like, ultimately, in in at least on the whole, that's been for the better. Um, so obviously, people's mileage mileage may vary on whether they think it's. Um, for the better. Um, but I, so I do think there's that that's worth acknowledging that the news has gotten more analytical and more interpretive, um, which I personally like. Um, but also once that, once that becomes more a part of the news that, you know, th that inevitably involves, um, reporters' opinions getting into the news. Um, I also think the idea that news was ever unbiased is kind of a, it, it's a false notion um, that, there, that there really is no such thing as unbiased Well, news. let me, let me yeah. give you another example. Uh, the Spanish, what is it, the Spanish-American War? Yeah, where yeah. Randolph Hearst said, you send us the pictures and we'll write the articles. It's uh, it's the the famous statement. Uh, William Randolph Hearst. Uh, oh, I'm trying to remember what the details were. Um, uh, it, it was like you supply the pictures and we'll supply the war. Um, the idea yeah. that we could just kind of create, we could just kind of create the war. We'll 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 tell America what it needs to be told. You know. Um, yeah. 
So it's kind of a it's a lie that the news that I don't want to say journalism has never been biased, but there's always been kind of a there's been a capitalistic thrust behind it all the time throughout our right. entire history, the entire history of journalism. Right. Yeah. You know, what's interesting and, and is some of this, um, you know, I think has become a little bit more well known in the past few years. But um, in the early days of our, our country, um, the news media was far more partisan than it is now. Um, far more. It was not just like biased independent news article or, or you know, um, organizations like we might have now. There was not, you know, it wasn't as though like Thomas Jefferson's newspaper was like a Fox News and Alexander Hamilton's or John Adams's was like an MSNBC. These, uh, the, the prominent um, news organizations were literally bankrolled by the parties. They were like party newsletters. Um, and and they did the party's bidding, which is a totally different level and a totally different model than the United States has now. Um, so and and those were like the fledgling days of our democracy up until things started to shift in about the 1830s. Um, so we have been we have been way way more biased than this. I mean, and they they would. I mean, they were like out of control. They were accusing each other, you know, you'd have newspaper editors accusing candidates of like having STDs and illegitimate children. And all, I mean, it's just crazy stuff. Uh, there's a great book on this, um, forgetting the author for the moment, uh, but it's called Infamous Scribblers. It's a really fun book focusing on like the 1790s and just wow. crazy stuff that these newspapers would publish. And so that's that's kind of where where we came from and it really wasn't until the late 1800s that this idea that like journalism should be objective, should just stick to telling people the facts, should not, you know, insert their opinions, et cetera, et cetera. That didn't really start to fully crystallize as a philosophy until like 1880s, 1890s or so. Um, and in a lot of people's minds that also that then like fell apart in say, like depends on people's narratives, maybe the sixties, the seventies. So that means we only have in the, you know, all coming up on 250 um, I guess 230 some year history of our country, we only have like a 70 or so year window when our sort of idealistic notion of objectivity even really kind of existed and dominated in the news media. Um, and, and we feel like this was handed down by like George Washington on stone tablets, you know, along, you know, along with whatever the bill of rights or something like this. Um, but but it's only really kind of a little parenthesis in which this model really ruled. And I think that that at least um, I think changes our perspective as to like how absolutely fundamental to like the American way this way of seeing journalism is. So you got what about 1910, 1912? I read the Neiman Lab. Okay, this mm -hmm. this this is a concern to me. I I I. I I spent seven years at Nebraska getting a four-year art degree. Okay, a lot of people go I was to not, college I was, for seven years, John. They're called doctors. <laughs> I, yeah, good, good for them. I was not a good student. I have minors in like math and physics, and I think computer science. I went all around, but I never took a journalism course, and I kind of wish I would. That'll come up later. Uh, I'm going to ask you. 
I know your time is limited. You have to other things to do, and you're a professor and an important guy. Uh, I want to ask you this, okay? We, well, I mentioned the muckraking thing. We'll leave that for later. Uh, okay, right now we're seeing newspapers die all over the place, and especially rural newspapers or hometown newspapers. Was the the Youngstown Vindicator? Did That's you right. see that news? Yes, mm -hmm. just went out of business, and Youngstown, Ohio is not a small town, and it's the home of Bo Pelini. So Bo Pelini isn't going to get coverage anymore. But, I mean, when you think – and the Omaha paper, when uh, our Omaha World Herald had layoffs recently, um, and they were taken over by Lee – if I remember right, Lee Enterprises yeah, for management. They're still, they're still owned. That's right. They're they're still owned by Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, but they basically contracted out all their papers with Lee Enterprises to uh, to run them. And Lee Enterprises has owned the Lincoln Journal Star for a long time. Um, so um, what what is when what's going to happen to America? I mean, I'm not worried. Everybody, New York Times, Washington Post, right? L.A. Times, Chicago Tribune, Tribune, Star That's Tribune right. in Minneapolis. All these the metros have their papers, and they're probably going to live. But you know, Omaha, Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska, Grand Island, Nebraska, Columbus, Nebraska, North Platte, Nebraska. What's going to happen to these places when their newspapers die? Hmm. Yeah, I, I, um, I'm not really optimistic, and I, I don't know that anybody who really studies this area, like for a living, is optimistic um, at this point. Um, I, I wish I had a lot of reassuring, um, you know, words for you, but it, it does feel a little bit doom and gloom. Um, right now, I think you're absolutely right that the um, the the rich in journalism are getting richer. Uh, the New York Times is doing just fine. Donald Trump says it's failing, but it's actually in the best financial health it's been in uh, certainly since. Well, a large pre, part of pre, that would uh, be a large part of that would be because Donald Trump. It's true. Although the trends, the trends <laughs> were pointing. That's true. He has not. He has not hurt the New York Times business. Although the trends were pointing upward for them even before he, uh, you know, really became a phenomenon. Um, and so those those papers are going to be fine. And I also think, for the most part, the very small newspapers are going to be fine. Like very very small, as long as the communities that they're in themselves don't die so um like i'm in a town um i live in lexington virginia which is a town of like seven thousand, um and and we have a little weekly newspaper and that and that newspaper doesn't care about the internet it doesn't it barely puts anything on the internet and it's doing just fine because if you want to know stuff going on in town it's still just kind of the only real central kind of uh, you know, gathering place, central, you know, way to know. Um, and I think many of those, like your, your newspapers in, 
um, Aurora and, you know, uh, Wayne and, you know, Alliance or something like that, you know, and, and the real little ones I think are, I think are going to be okay as long as their, their communities aren't just completely shedding population, um, things like that. But the mid, the mid-sized papers, like your Youngstowns, um, and your Lincolns and your Grand Islands, those are the ones that I and, and other scholars are really the most, um, worried about, um, because they are, um, I mean, we, the story of how they've run into, you know, newspapers have sort of run into trouble. Everybody knows pretty well. Um, and, and everybody, it's one of those kind of, at least on a basic level, people just kind of intuitively understand, um, uh, why the value proposition for newspapers just isn't as great as it was 20 years ago. Um, so what is going to happen? That, that, if, that's one yeah. of the other questions. Right. If or when these Where did they close. lose this? Um, there's a Where lot did of different newspapers ways. lose their value? Um, well, I mean, the easy answer is the internet, of course, made available a lot of information for free that they provided, you know, um, that they bundled together as a paid product. Um, so the classic example, of course, is Craigslist. Um, just eating, you know, completely eating alive newspaper classifieds. Um, it just did exactly what they did, only, you know, better, more easily searchable and free. Um, boom, there go newspaper classifieds, you know. Um, you think about like sports coverage of the local teams. Um, you have you know, places like Corn Nation and its forerunners, you know, and the rivals and the, and Scout, et cetera, and college football, other organizations and other sports able to basically offer, you know, uh, quality coverage that in many ways, especially if you're a recruitnik, is more in depth than what newspapers offer and they can do it for free, although the, the college recruiting sites uh, they charge. Um, so um, so it's a lot of the a lot of the value that newspapers had was in being able to bring together all this different information. You have the you have the comics um, for you know, for the kids, you have like lifestyle and living and you had TV listings back when that really mattered. You had, you know, the stocks and you have the sports scores and all that stuff delivered in one bundle to your doorstep. Um, and as soon as the internet came and basically just unbundled that stuff and you didn't need it all together in one package, each person could just get what they needed from their little corner of the internet. The, the main value proposition was in that stuff all being brought together in one package. And then suddenly that, that one package together became a lot um, a lot less interesting and a lot less valuable. Um, and so now the value proposition has to be in the importance of local news and information, which I think newspapers are realizing people were never actually as interested in as, as they had said, or as they had thought. Right. Um, you know, the, the people just kind of like the vindicator. I read the articles about for people that don't aren't don't aren't aware of this, uh, Youngstown, Ohio, uh, they had a, a local newspaper called the Vindicator, and after what 150 years, it's it's closing business, it's bankrupt, they're, they're going out of business, right? And uh, right. you know they have this town meeting, and one of the guys stood up and said, "Well, yeah, but how many of you were subscribers?" And I'm sure that that answer wasn't. You know, 
not a lot of people raise their hands. And I, I, and I watch. This is important to me. I, I feel otherwise I wouldn't have had you on this podcast. I would have said, hey, how you doing, Mark? Uh, you got a birthday or something, whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I, I think this is very important. It's important to me because I, I you know, I think journalism is interesting and if you don't have people watching stuff like mm-hmm. journalism journalists do what the hell is going to happen to us you know yeah i i absolutely agree i mean i, I think i think in in those certainly those communities have lost a newspaper and youngstown is now the largest uh american um city without a daily newspaper um or, or a consistently publishing um, newspaper. Uh, there have been others whose newspapers went less than daily in the print edition, but they're still, you know, publishing constantly online. This will be the the, the first one without a uh, kind of major consistently publishing newspaper. And I think I think in those cities, but to a lesser degree everywhere, I think this is kind of a, potentially a heyday for like petty corruption. Uh, in in local government and local business, et cetera, because there's just there always should be. And I remember this is something that was you know taught to me in journalism school, and it really is true. But every time a public official does something that they think well, is this is this okay, this might be a little bit sketchy. There should be a, a watcher. There, there should, should be, be a, a reporter watcher. in the rearview mirror. Like you should have to check your rearview mirror before you before you do something like this. You should have to know there could be somebody watching. This is this is sort of under somebody's purview. Whether or not they catch me, I don't know, but I have to at least take that into account. And I think you're more and more getting into a realm in which there just isn't anybody in the rearview mirror anymore. You're they're just alone on a highway doing ninety and. And uh, I just think we're going to see a lot more of that kind of the kind of, like I said, petty corruption that local newspapers have been their bread and butter trying to dig this up. Um, and we're just not even going to know about it. Um, and so um, that's that's the kind of thing that I think the this sort of crisis in journalism means um, in the long run. I think there's there's some stuff to talk about with you know kind of community sense of belonging where you have this you know a, a newspaper or a major news organization helping kind of define for a community these are the issues that we're talking about and sort of serving as a public forum. I think that function has really declined and diminished. Um, and I think there's something lost when that goes away, but that can be potentially replaced, but literally people with their butts in the seats at city council meetings and school board meetings, um, who are kind of, who have a real nose for what is not right and a way to kind of find out about it and communicate it to people, um, in, in an understandable and sensible way, like that can't just be replaced. Um, that is really valuable and that's, that's going away. Wow. So it's kind of scary. Here's the, okay. We probably should wrap it up in the next few minutes, but I'm going to ask you, if if newspapers continue to go away, what's going to fill this void? Um, I I don't know. I think there there are a number of really interesting experiments trying. So uh, Youngstown is already showing signs of you know people are uh, descending on it um, with these little experiments. Um, I just saw 
Yesterday, there's a Google-funded kind of local news initiative um, that um, they uh, have been kind of ramping up and getting started. I'm not really sure what all they're going to entail, but they announced yesterday that they're going to they're going to choose Youngstown as their pilot project, and they're going to put reporters there. Um, and I again, I'm Google. not really sure. What they're- Google's, yeah, Google's gonna do Google's that. funding it. This is Google doing their like penance. Um, uh, it's <laughs> exactly what it is. They've had newspapers railing at them for 15 years, and like you have, you've crippled us. Like, give something back. And Google is like, okay, fine, we'll toss you a few million dollars. You know, blah blah blah. And and you know, it may not, you know, uh, it, it may not be commensurate with the damage that Google has done, but it's it's better than nothing. You know. Um, and so what is, what is that bad Sylvester Stallone movie where he shows up in the future and all the restaurants are Taco Bell <laughs> and all the news organizations are Google. They forgot yeah, that part. it's, it's <laughs> kind of like that, isn't it? Right. Well, you think about it. I mean, they've got all the money. It's Google and Facebook right now are pouring money into local news initiatives and this everybody is, is kind of like, oh, that's I mean, wonderful. I mean, you know. It's terrifying. It's I, so I'm not I'm not terrified because right now they're they're independently they're independently run and they're of course they're independently run until they're not but right uh, until somebody that until they get big footed but I would rather I would rather have this than nothing I would much rather have this than nothing I would also much rather have an actual local newspaper that is healthy and thriving than any of this. Um, but um, so they're, they've, they've, got, um, they've got an experiment running. I just saw ProPublica, which is the massive national nonprofit um, news organization. They're running some sort of little – they're planting a reporter in, um, in um, Youngstown to basically make it that person's job to try to do the sort of watchdog reporting that the, that the local new, you know, uh, newspaper had been doing. Um, I think there's a really interesting experiment called Report for America – um, that's a nonprofit. Um, it's like foundation funded, funded by all these, you know, um, donors and various, you know, uh, giant, giant foundations. And, um, they're taking young journalists who you maybe have a couple of years of experience and planting them in like rural, um, underserved, um, towns and cities to basically go, you know, dig in, in a particular area. So like one of their pilot projects was in Kentucky looking at like coal mining industry and environmental issues and the kind of things that just the local newspaper doesn't really have the resources to do. Um, and that one, um, they've sort of declared their pilot a success and they're expanding. And I think you could see little things like that that are, you know, some kind of post-apocalyptic little shoots that are that are promising. Um, are they going to replace the newspapers in their power in their heyday? No, not even close. Um and and again, I'm still pessimistic on the whole, but I think there are little signs of positivity here and there. Even if, as you said, we have reason to be skeptical of Google's motives in funding all this, right? Or Facebook, or Facebook, yeah. I mean, my God, Mark <laughs> or Zuckerberg looks like a he looks like a I'm in tech, right? Yeah. In my life, and I I watch Mark Zuckerberg, and I look at him, and I go. Oh my God! You stumbled into this. You have no idea what you're doing. You're the worst freaking person in tech ever to stand in front of massive amounts of technology and try to control it. I mean, Bill Gates was better than he is, and Bill Gates was a monster. 
He destroyed companies all over the place. Bill Gates has been a wonder. He's like Jimmy Carter, crappy president, but after he was a president, a really good guy. Bill Gates running a company, massively destruction of other tech companies. But afterwards, he's done amazing things for humanity. Nothing to do with what we're talking about. I just went on a rant. I'm sorry. That's all right. It's your podcast. You can do what you want. <laughs> I, don't encourage me, Mark. <laughs> okay. Is there – we have I, – I have other things I want to talk about, but I think that's a good start. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. enough for now. Yeah, I would just, you know, I I would kind of leave it with a, an encouragement to listeners that like if this is something that you care about, you care about the future of kind of news and information and, you know, uh, a watchdog for your town and your community, um pay for your local pay for a local news organization. Um and um you know, subscribe to it digitally, uh, you know, in print something like that. Now, I I will say they're they're not charities, so they they have to like do something to earn your dollar. And a lot of times they're just they're not very good anymore because they've been gutted, you know. Um they've they've laid off so many, you know, so many people because they're owned by some hedge fund somewhere. Um but it's not going to get better if um if the people of the community don't put money behind it. Like you said with that Youngstown meeting, like how many of you were subscribers? Um, if you care about it, you show by putting your money where your mouth is. Um, right. And um, and again, it's it's hard to do. It's it's hard to advocate because I I you know I see local newspapers and you look at them and you just there's nothing here. Like there's no good information here. And so I you know I'm not gonna you know lecture you to subscribe to a newspaper that's not very good. That's just simply terrible. But if you're on the fence and you haven't really thought about it and you feel like yeah, it'd be really terrible if my my newspaper went away. Well, you you can do something about it if it's something you really value. Well, I live in Chaska, the home of Luke Roscombe, who is our third baseman and catcher and first baseman, and he played everywhere on a baseball team. And uh, he is uh, wait, I was going to say. It's also the home of the Ryder Cup a couple years ago, and it's I, apparently right now the home of the women's LPGA. I don't follow golf, but <laughs> I was happy to know that when I picked up my local newspaper this morning, because we get it every week on Thursdays, that um, they're going to rebuild the pavilion down by my lake that was burned down by an arsonist. So that's important to me. That's actually local news that I want to know. How am I going to find that out I, without my local newspaper? I don't know. I don't subscribe to it. It comes free. They just deliver it. I, I, I don't know how any of this works. I wish all of it. Is that socialism? I don't know. That's a rhetorical <laughs> no, question. Not. We don't have to go into that. I'm sure that you know. I I know uh, Mark Olson who edit edits the paper, and uh, we're fine. Anyway, um, I think we're done, Mark. Aren't we for this episode? I guess. Okay, uh, it's been we, a pleasure, John. Has it? Yes, this is really good. Fun. Good. Uh, you'll come back. Um. Yeah. Sure. Whenever. Whenever you want to talk about. Um. Talk about stuff. 
Well, there's a whole election coming up, and I'm sure it's going to kill most of America. Well, we'll see. I mean, I, I, um, if if it ends up the all the Corn Nation commenters end up just yelling at me for like 200 comments on the podcast, I don't know. Um, so that, that would be good like, because that makes it sound like I'm threatening them. Like, don't don't write mean comments on me about me, or I won't come back. Um, but I, I. <laughs> um, I, I'm, it's, it's fine. I, I understand. People have strong, strong feelings about this. Did you know, did you know that John? I, I never heard them before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Mark, for uh, Dr. Mark, for uh, letting me take some of your time. Uh, this has been the, let's see, John's post-life crisis podcast. And thank you for listening. Have a nice day. Goodbye.